Hello fellow travelers, welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast. We just heard was an excerpt from Luisa Almaguer's song Basica. She's an experimental pop artist from Mexico City. The song is from her latest EP Mataro no Matar, and as such, we'll be anchoring near Mexico today with associate professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government of George Mason University, author of two books on topics related to Mexico, USA and energy policies, Guadalupe Correa. Hi, how are you? Hello, Scanner. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming along. Um, we'll get straight into it. You've written two books that touch on topics that are quite important about democracy, about criminal activities, um, especially so in, in Mexico. And one of these books, Los Zetas Inc., which uh, was published in 2017. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, touches on a specific organized crime uh, group and the ways in which they impact energy policy and energy uh, issues in, in Mexico. Our first question, I guess, is what got you into this topic? Is there something that, that pushed you towards studying Los Zetas or, or Mexican criminal activity? Or did something happen that, that kind of projected you towards it? Actually, yes. Um, it's a personal story combined with the story of my country. Uh, in the year 2006, uh, the president of Mexico declared a so-called war on drugs, which really meant the militarization of the security strategy and the utilization of the federal police regular um, zone of competence. Uh, this security strategy um, was, was uh, very controversial in the beginning and continued to be because it ended up in, uh, I mean, more or less 100,000 people that died in six years of his administration. At the same time, the same year, my family was, uh, my father had a business and land in a state of Mexico, the state of Michoacán, and he received a threat from a group called Los Zetas. Um, allegedly, the so-called war on drugs had to do with the fact that the different groups that used to tra uh, traffic drugs, the drug trafficking organizations, were out of control. After a period of 71 years of one party in power and democracy arriving to the country, before that, there was just one party that dominated all the activities and dominated the social relations in the country and social, political, and economic relations. But after that, uh, different governors and different political actors uh, had different deals with criminal organizations, right? So that, um, that uh, coherence that we had during the 71 years of one party was broken. And then a so-called drug war appeared where different groups were fighting for control of very specific uh, plazas to, to traffic drugs to the United States. But the fact, that, the fact was that organized crime had at the same time militarized their actions and transformed itself. And this is why my family received threats by Los Zetas. The, the drug trafficking organizations used to traffic drugs only. But by the end of last century, by the beginning of this century, they started to diversify their activities by the militarization of, of, the, of, the, of their model uh, of operations. How is that? Because uh, the special forces of the Mexican army that were trained um, in special operations uh, to fight 
the guerrilla movement in Chiapas, Mexico, they were they were very well trained, but they were not needed in, in Chiapas because there was not a movement of, of insurgency anymore. And they were sent to fight a drug trafficking to the northern part of Mexico at the border with the United States. And then they met uh, some of the main drug lords that were operating there and they started to collaborate with them. And the drug lords started to fight for the control of their plazas with other drug lords because of this change in the political system in the country where the state or the party and the president were not in charge of negotiating with everybody. There were different governors, different political actors were negotiated with different uh, uh, drug trafficking organizations. And so there was kind of a, a different model. And then this model was militarized because of the involvement of special forces of the Mexican army. So you said the, the military start began to collaborate with certain drug lords. Former military personnel. Oh, I see. Oh, right. Of oh. the Mexican army. And how did this... um? militaristic front on uh, against uh, drug lords uh, how did you you've characterized this as a civil war which is in, in, implying that the general public is involved or victimized um so how did it escalate to that okay let me let me just give the, the background because that uh i mean that concept of a modern civil war came afterwards and i will explain you why it's not just okay. the militarization of the criminal model itself but there are many other forces that it is not so easy it's a little bit more complex before before arriving to this part at the same time that democratization was taking place the militarization of the criminal model arrived because of democratization of the democratization of mexico and because it fights for the control of the different classes to traffic drugs to the united states it was well, a very profitable market because of course of prohibition right prohibition and uh, and, mm. and u.s drug policy at the time today. Then what happened is that this militarization of the criminal models and these special forces of the of the Mexican army, they, they, were, they went to fight them to the, to the northern part of Mexico. But instead of fighting them, they collaborated with them. They started as military, I mean, as military personnel. They went to Mexico, part of the judicial police, the federal police, mm -hmm. to fight in, in anti-narcotics operation, in anti operations, and then they became part of these organizations, right? So they, with their, their capacity to, uh, I mean, to control territories through, through military uh, strategies, with the access to high caliber weapons, with their knowledge of how to use them and all that, uh, this is what, what started in the place where I used to live but I will tell you before what happened to the family. So they started to control territories through the militarization of their model. So controlling territories, you can control not only the drug trafficking operations, you, you, you also control other illicit, uh, other illicit businesses. So they started to diversify. And instead just of selling drugs, they started to become involved in, I mean, they started to commit extortion. They started to steal fuel, to dedicate to music piracy. All the illicit activities that took place in the territories that they control because of these military models were performed by these groups. Is this something that your own family was subject to as well? Exactly, because they started to, uh, I mean, to threaten the people who owed a business because they were controlling those territories. They started to charge them a fee to exist, which is called the 
So right. it's an extortion fee. It's the same type of fee that Central American gangs charge for everybody to exist, to be able to operate, to mm. be secure. It's a fake so, protection yeah. fee. Yeah. Exactly. Those protection fees. So my, my, my father was living and was uh, having a business in the state of Michoacan and he was approached, he was working with my brother and they were approached by Los Zetas. Los Zetas changed the face of criminal organizations in Mexico, the face of drug trafficking in Mexico by the incorporation of this military model, the militarization of organized crime brought by Los Zetas. And this model was exported. This is a model. It's not just an organization. This is how I study the book. And I will explain you why this model is so important and the response by the state. This is not just a matter of narcos and bad guys uh, fighting another bad guy, Mexican guy, bad looking guys, you know, narcos. This is something that has to do with businesses. And I will, will explain you why. We're talking about mm -hmm. business. We're not talking about drugs here. We're talking about yeah. business and connected to the energy industry. But let me first explain this because uh, not everybody understands what I'm talking about because of Netflix yeah. and because of the misinformation <laughs> that we receive from uh, a lot of American and European and, you know, this big mass media, right? Yeah. And, and in a way, this is, uh, this is kind of why we have you on the podcast. A lot of listeners, I think, at this point, will be thinking, how does you know how does Los Zetas and and criminal activity in, in Mexico relink to things like environmental concerns, which is what we touch on the podcast here? But like you like you're you're saying and and you're going to to explain further. I think it's really important to learn the the ways in which, for example, Mexico, as amazing as of a country as it is, it does have an issue with criminal uh, organized crime, and that has a very real link to energy. Um, which is, which is, I guess, undeniably an obstacle that Mexico will have to face, right? We have many other problems. We are connected to the United States and our policies are really linked to the United States. Drug policy, security policy, immigration policy and everything. So a lot of the decisions that are taken at this level in Mexico have to do with interest of the United States. And of course, we're mm -hmm. talking about transnational corporations. Many of them uh, have their headquarters in the United States. So it's very convenient for these uh, companies to have what I want to explain, the, the phenomenon that was created by this model and by the response of the state. In the end, this is not about drugs. In the end, this is about energy. Right. It has implications for Mexico and for the environment in Mexico. But this is something that many people don't understand. And I didn't understand until I started to do research on it. And because of your first question, I'm sorry it has taken me so long to try to respond. No, 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 don't apologize. <laughs> but first of all, we have time, right? But the Yes. thing here is very important and I will explain you why. So my father had his business in Michoacan. He was working with my brother and this extortion fee, they were asked for the extortion fee and many others in the same place where they were living were asked for the extortion fee. And uh, the problem when you start paying extortion fee is, is, is at the end, um, uh, these people can continue charging extortion fees and elevating the extortion fee and there can be another group and they fight among themselves and still you are kidnapped or you are, um, I mean, or you are, uh, I mean, all your family is killed or whatever. So that's what happened to some of the 
friends of my father to some of the people in that land. So people in the end have to leave their lands. There is so much violence that it's caused because of the arrival of these groups, because they have access to high caliber weapons, they start to extort, I mean, commit extortion, they, they start to kill people, but at the same time, this is calling uh, the law enforcement authorities. And in the, in the beginning, local law enforcement authorities started to find as well this new model and they were involved into that. So local police started to become involved. And this is why the president of Mexico at this time, uh, Felipe Calderón Hinojosa in the year 2006, which was exactly the same year when my father received the, the threats because he, he decided not to pay extortion fee. So they threatened him and they said that they will kill my brother, but my father decided to leave that place because he was sure that something was not right. And if he started paying extortion fee, he would be at risk. And that's exactly what happened. Some of his friends started to pay extortion fees and some of them were killed and some of them were kidnapped and some of them are, are alive. But that happened to the people that were living in that territory, in that land. Uh, but he left, he went to Mexico City and he lost everything he had. He, he, he decided not to continue his business in Michoacán. This is what many, this is the story of many people. After that, uh, I, I, was, I was studying my PhD at that time and I defended my PhD and in the year 2009, with all the implications of the Mexico's drug wars, because when the state arrives and militarizes its security, you create a space, and this is what I call a, a modern civil war. The actual military was facing another type of army because these groups like Jose had personnel that knew how to access and how to use uh, uh, arms of high caliber that were accessible from the United States, particularly from the state of Texas, but everywhere else. And so you have kind of two, um, two armies. You have the criminal army and you have the, I mean, the actual army because Already in 2006, the president of Mexico had declared a war against organized crime, against drug trafficking organizations. But these organizations were not uh, only drug trafficking organizations, as I explained. And the model of Los Cetas was exported to other parts of the country and was exported and was um, an inspiration for other criminal groups or other groups that dedicated at some point uh, to traffic drugs. I mean, drug trafficking agents are businesses. They earn money by selling drugs to the United States. And these businesses kind of like uh, uh, modernized and diversified and started to operate as corporations because they, they, they were not just focused on, on, on drugs. They became very, um, very sophisticated and operated in, in important parts of the Mexican territory because you don't, you didn't need, uh, you, you don't need now just to control territories where drugs were going to be passing. You can control territories to do other things, to steal hydrocarbons, to steal gas and fuel, mm -hmm. to steal um, wood, to steal whatever, iron ore, and many other things. This is what they started to do. I will tell you what happened. Then, uh, this militarization of the security strategy, so you create a space of confrontation between two armies. And this is where the people are in the, in the middle. And this is why many people left uh, important parts of Mexico where the life was unbearable because these groups, these uh, very, these groups that at some point were narcos, but now they could do whatever because they control the territories. They charge you extortion fee, you didn't pay it, and they kill a fam in, in, in entire families and then 
the, the army started arriving. And when the army started arriving, you, create, you generate even higher levels of violence. So, and, but at the same time, this is even more complicated. Mexico declared a war on drugs hand in hand with the United States, collaborating very closely with the United States, who benefits too from these. Many companies, you know, selling arms to the Mexican army, selling arms to these corp criminal corporations, this, uh, I could call them paramilitary criminal groups, because paramilitary because of their connection with the state. Many deserters of not only special forces of the Mexican army, but regular army members, uh, members mm -hmm. of the army, like deserted because it was more profitable. Do you know the, the sort of ratio or, or can you give us some kind of, of, can you help us understand a little bit how, how much of, uh, of Los Zetas and groups like it are, uh, are made up of, of people from the army or from paramilitary? They started uh, to be, you know, important uh, numbers in the beginning. Many people deserted from the, from the Mexican army. We see the numbers and there was a big, big increase, particularly at the beginning of the century. We don't know how many of them stayed. We don't have those numbers. We cannot conduct mm -hmm. them. But yeah, of you know, it's a transformation of this model, right? What I am, what I'm trying to say is that when this this is a logic, the logic is milita is militarized, right? I mean, the model is militarized. But who forms part of this organization? We have different members, members of different ranks. We have we don't have only uh, uh, former military personnel. This is just a very small part. Now we have also members of the police, uh, of the local police, of the state police. I mean, law enforcement agencies and civilians, people who wear poor, who were uh, not that poor, you know, this, this started to become like a corporation. The involvement of different groups, not just the people from the, from the military, were losetas, right? Of course, in mm -hmm. the beginning, Caibiles and former military personnel uh, gave this logic, and this, this kind of logic was military, but several others were involved, and there are different levels, different uh, names. Uh, losetas are Los Zetas, the militaries uh, have the, the Z, uh, the code, but there were L's that were also members of Los Zetas, but the L's, it, this was in the beginning. Right now, this is, mm -hmm. this, this is, this does not only apply to a specific group that was operated in a state that I used to know very well because of the job that I took at the border. You said that um, many um, people from the army and the police um, had, had joined Los Zetas. When they did that, did they abandon their old um, allegiances or w w would they both be in the police and uh, such criminal syndicates at the same time? Absolutely. They, some of them left their agencies, but some of them still operating, operated. Uh, local police. Right. Is that perhaps why you characterize it as a, a civil war? Because the, the people being victimized by individuals who are part of both entities, which is sort of kind of blurring the lines of it. Absolutely, that's one part right. of it. Okay. The involvement of the state, right? There's always kind of like a criticism of my book and my material for me to characterize this as a civil war because nobody finds the political agenda here or the political motivation. And to some extent, mm -hmm. they are correct. Because if we kind of like incorporate this, we can also start talking about terrorism and this has other implications. But exactly because, first of all, the president declared 
a war against drug trafficking organizations. Who declared the, the war? The war was declared by the state. The state gave these organizations a political, a, a, a political label when you declare a war on actors. And these actors, at the same time, their origin was connected to I mean, to government forces, right? Was connected to um, uh, uh, former members of the Mexican army and current members of law enforcement agencies that are mm -hmm. within these agencies. So, the, I mean, the, the political factor and the connections with the state are everywhere. But this is not a civil war in a traditional sense. This is a modern civil war. We have the elements to characterize this as a civil war. Of course, there is one, the first one, and many people have said, yes, of course, all the, the violence, the utilization of high caliber weapons, you know, the extreme violence is, is, is very similar to what happened in other civil wars of other countries, but not only that. Also, the actors themselves that were connected to the state and the fact that the president had declared a war on drugs making them political actors, that's another thing. You know, these are civil wars and, and it's not about getting power, accessing power, to, I mean, in, in some sense, in many sense. They are not, their, their main goal is not, you know, reaching power as in the traditional sense where you kind of understand civil wars, right? You have to take the government down in order to put yourself there or try to, to change the system. We're not talking about that. We are talking about wars for, um, it's a civil war, it's a modern civil war, it's an economic war where, the, where there's the political uh, or the state involved here, but the objectives are material, the objectives are economic, the objectives are the control, controlling uh, natural resources. And I will explain to you why. In 2009, we had already seen extremely high levels of violence. Many people uh, assassinated by, not only by, by criminal groups, but also in these confrontations with the state, with these confrontations with government forces, right? With the army, with the Mexican army. These confrontations made many people uh, assassinated. In, you know, these confrontations, this kind of civil war. It's not that bad guys killing everybody, which is that's why it is wrong what Netflix series present us. They present us these bad guys that kill everybody. That was not true. The confrontation made the state killing a lot of people in, in, in paramilitary, uh, these this criminal paramilitary groups that incorporated um, members of law enforcement agencies. There is another form of paramilitarization. The involvement of the Mexican army in, in, this, in operations where they didn't, they didn't wear uniforms. How to kill or how to regain control of territories already controlled by these groups. You cannot kill them, right? I mean, formally, you have to take them to prison to, to, to uh, I mean, start a, a legitimate process, but they didn't do it. So we don't really know how many people died in, uh, in the hands of the state or in the arms or in the hands of the criminal groups. And that's why that's also part of what I call the modern civil war. In 2009, I finished my dissertation and I moved to Brownsville, Texas. Brownsville, Texas is located um, just by 10 minutes, you know, crossing the border from Matamoros, Tamaulipas. Matamoros, Tamaulipas is the cradle of the hometown of a cartel called the Gulf Cartel. The Gulf Cartel is the father of the group called Los Zetas. 
the leader of the gold cartel by the end of the of last century, early 20th century, this is where the, the leader of that group found these uh, former forces of the Mexican army that were working for the judicial police, for the federal police at the border, and they incorporated them. And these forces, this group started to cooperate with this cartel. This is how this cartel acquired the militarization, the military tactics, started to diversify its operations and controlling territories. And then I moved there. I moved there and in the year 2009, by the end of the year 2009, there were shootings and the bullets arrived to the other side of the of the of the border, and they shoot my university. You you said how um many of the people in this criminal syndicate are are either ex or currently in policing or um, military institutions. To what extent would you roughly say that these two institutions, the government or at least the um the military and law enforcement and the criminal syndicate, are integrated? Is it you know is it is it just a few kind of I don't know how to say it, disloyal stragglers. Is it, is it more core, more fundamental? Well, it was, uh, Losetas right now, it's a bunch of uh, criminal cells, but at the best, uh, the best times of the, of the, of the Losetas, which I would say would go from 2004, 2005 till 2012. I would say that we're not talking about uh, magnitude or how much of it, it's, it's, we can talk about a system. In some uh, municipalities of Mexico, Mexican uh, cities, um, this is a political division, municipalities, right? The, the, the territory mm -hmm. is divided in municipalities. Mm -hmm. municip in some of these municipalities, the complete local police of the municipality was working for Los Zetas, or was working right. for right, okay. <laughs> okay, and, and this is, and in some of the states, the governor, the governor protected the organization. There are uh, judicial cases right. in the United States where, I mean, where the testimony said that some of the governors directly received um, money from these groups and protected these groups. The governor, the top man in the state. Is it not just the materials and the weapons and the expertise that is being passed on, but individuals actually using their official authority to extort? Yeah. In my book, some of the governors are even part of this system. This is yeah. a system. That's why it's a corporation. It's not a group like, like you see in Netflix, right? There's a system that involves players at different levels, in, in, even incorporating some uh, members, maybe actual or former members of uh, law, enforcement, uh, law enforcement authorities, as you know. Just very recently, in 2019, uh, former uh, Secretary of Public Safety of Mexico, one of the most powerful men in the country during the years 2006 to 2012, during the administration of the President of Mexico who declared the war on drugs, the right hand of this president, the, the, the most powerful man, the Secretary of Public Safety, was arrested in the United States for charges connected to the protection and receiving bribes from the Sinaloa cartel. The biggest right. and the most powerful man at that time, the one who went after Los Zetas and, and was heading the federal police, who was the Secretary of Public Safety. As you know, I mean, I, I'm not, when I'm talking about Los Zetas, it's a model. It's not a group. Mm -hmm. At some point, it was a group that dominated an important part of the Mexican territory, the 
Mexico. But this model was, was uh, exported to other groups and utilization of the local police, you know, they paid, police was paid very low salaries. So um, the local police pre preferred to protect uh, these groups than to go after them. They didn't have enough arms and all that. They received a better arm. They were part of the system, right? That, of course, uh, protection from the governor of these states. And so, and then you have a president that allegedly is fighting these groups, but it's protecting another group. Yeah. That's, that's the official story. It's very messy. Uh, so Los Zetas was the more uh, violent group at that time. So the president went after Los Zetas and the Gulf Coast, but didn't do a lot to the groups that operated in the Pacific, the Sinaloa cartel. And supposedly, according to official, the official story and according to um, to the judges and according to to in the United States after the El Chapo trial, uh, allegedly. The most powerful man, the head of the of, of the Secretariat of Public Safety, was protecting the other group, the groups in the Pacific. Right? That's why they didn't they, they didn't fragment as 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 Losetas. Uh, I I I wanted to tell you also how I realized how this thing really works and how like who benefits from this modern civil war that I'm. About. Mm -hmm. So when I moved to Brownsville, Texas, I was studying uh, other types of violence, political violence, and I moved to the border and moved to the other side of the city that gave birth to Los Zetas, right? The organization that, that gave birth to Los Zetas was, this was, this was the hometown of the group. And in 2009, the Los Zetas and the Gulf Cartel started a fight that was extremely violent, that killed uh, thousands and thousands of Mexican people. In the end, as I said, uh, approximately 100,000 people were uh, connected to to these or related activities. And, uh, and then I tried to study what was going on. The personal story that I had, plus uh, the fact that I was just by the, one of the most violent cities in Mexico, as I said, sometimes bullets uh, reached the other side, they reached my university, people stopped going and crossing to the other side. I spoke Spanish, and many of my students uh, described what was happening. Many of them go and study in the U.S. side of the border, but they are Mexicans, and they live in this other city. I live in Brownsville, Texas, the Mexican city, the sister city is called Matamoros, Tamaulipas. Many of our students were living in Matamoros, and they crossed to study, and they you know, tell, told me what was happening. Some of their parents were kidnapped, some of their family members of their friends were killed, or, or they suffered this um, very directly. So uh, I learned about that. I wanted to study about that. And I started to see, we, we became at that time uh, very, I mean, we, we became very interested in understanding which group was operating where. Because of this fight, um, different groups started to arise, and we tried to see where they were dominating. It was about territorial control. So I started to map, we started to map, for example, I started to map the state of Tamaulipas, that was the state of birth of Los Zetas. And I started to see which group, because these two groups started to fight for power. At some point, this group, Los Zetas and the, and the Gulf Cartel, were the same group, the same criminal organization. All right. They fought for the control of power and the control of territories. And then we have to see, and I started to map where the groups were uh, located. Right? And I started to study better, because they started to fight for the control of the whole uh, Gulf 
coast or the territories of the Gulf Coast. I would say like the the eastern part of Mexico, right? From the Gulf Coast, from Guatemala to the border of the United States, half of the country. They were fighting for control of those territories. And I started to map them, but then I realized why? And, and then, of course, there was a third actor, the military, trying to regain control of those territories. We had this, you know, modern civil war because with the entrance of the military, things started to become even worse. It was not just the fight between them, but also the third actor with the military. So I started to, to try to think why, and why in certain places you have levels of violence that make uh, other people to leave their territories, as they made my father leave. My father was forced to flee from a land that was productive, that he left everything because he could not put his family at risk. So he left that and many other families were leaving their territories. And I could see it because I got a fellowship to study the border, the Tamaulipas-Texas border, and I started to see that many, many families had to leave. It was extremely violent. They had uh, uh, cars and arms. It was a kind of a war, the descriptions. And you could, you could read about it in, in mm -hmm. several uh, media, and you could see yeah. what people were the same thing that happened to my father. So I started to try to see what was there, what was in the land, why yeah. in some places and why in others don't. Am I right to say that the uh, Los Zetas is slightly less organized or structured than, for example, let's say the Sinaloa cartel, which is, um, if I'm right, the one that's headed by um, Guzman, by El Chapo, right? Who Or was, at least since he's now in prison in Colorado. But um, it, it seems like those, that at least the Sinaloans are... A, from what I've read before, um, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it's more of a structured hierarchy in that gang at least, whereas it sounds like what you're saying could be a bit more less organized in the hierarchical structure with Los Zetas. Exactly. Um, to some extent, because I'll say things have changed, right? And that was our understanding. The traditional model of drug trafficking organizations, you had a hierarchical model, you mm -hmm. have a, you have a no, uh, uh, drug lord, and then you have, you know, the drug lord gives orders, and you know they are from from particular parts of Mexico, and they kind of protect those places where they live and their families live, like Sinaloa, like Matamoros, and Tamaulipas, and they are good guys because they want their communities to be good, but they are the masters; they they rule, right? And Los Zetas, yes, that what the truth is that Los Zetas came to change the whole face of drug trafficking. I would I would allege at least in the Americas. Colombians would not be very happy with this because they don't agree with that. I think that, that, that they started everything and everything started in Colombia. My, my idea is that the militarization of this model, the way it happened, the way it happened with Rosetta, it's Rosetta's model. And what happened, these people were not from there. They came from different parts of the country, as I said. Uh, some of them, and, and this is where the model becomes very complicated, right? You have former forces of the Mexican army, people who desert from the army, and they are forming part of these groups, also uh, local law enforcement agents, some of them wearing uniforms, some of them without wearing uniform. Some of them also left the, the agencies, some of them stayed at the agencies. You have the recruitment of many because it's, it's a war, so you have to recruit 
um, uh, some, some, some people to also confront themselves. Some people that were part of gangs, actual gangs. There's a difference between gangs and drug trafficking organizations. These drug trafficking organizations are transnational in nature. And many of the activities that dedicate to are transnational in nature. Some of them even uh, steal uh, fuel and gas and sell it or hydrocarbons to produce gas a, or gasoline in the United States, they, they export it to the United States. So you can see, you are talking about a transnational criminal group that is formed as a corporation. It is not a hierarchy of families like a Chavo and his sons and his daughter and all that, that has another partner, business partner, and then the business partner after he's arrested, you know, he's the boss. That's not the, that's not the way things are happening. Today, the Sinaloa cartel has also diversified its activities. And right now, you know, the model is much more complicated. Uh, why? Because this is the way that the economy, illicit and illicit economies have diversified and have globalized to an extent that the model becomes much more complicated. Now, the Sinaloa cartel also has diversified its activities and also has had access to high caliber weapons. So that traditional model does not exist anymore, I would say, in the Americas. You cannot survive with that model anymore because you control territories. You know that the arms allow you to do that. And corruption yeah. allows you protection from different forces. And you know, the protection that was provided to the Tinaloa cartel uh, from the highest levels of government, from the most powerful man in the country, according to the official stories. Uh, we don't really know about this. There's a trial going on. And we don't know how much protection he gave to the Sinaloa cartel. But if, 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 he's, if, he's, if he was arrested by the US authorities, they are not going to, well, they, they know something about that, right? So with that protection, you're not just going to sell your drugs. You, you're controlling territories. You're controlling much more. Mm -hmm. that, that's why you know, your question is, OK, we're talking about corporations. We're not talking about businesses uh, of the traditional way. They have always been businesses. We, we, we try to use, and in my book, I always try to use business administration literature to understand this as a, as a business model, not as a bunch of narcos killing themselves and, and, and you know, making women fall in love with them, mm. things like that. At the end of the day, it's, uh, they're responding to a profit motive of some kind. Absolutely. And I will tell you then when the energy came. So when, when this happened, I started to see there were some places where people were living completely. They were kind of like, not completely, but, you know, many of the people who could leave, they were living, right? And they were going to the United States. So there were, there was a lot of internal migration because of that. And I started to try to see what was going on. And I realized mapping the terror, I mean, the homicides in Mexico. And then I mapped uh, also, um, because I realized that Tamaulipas is a rich, is a state extremely rich in hydrocarbons, particularly oil and gas, and uh, and gas for fracking. And there's, uh, I mean, on the other side of the border, there's a geological formation uh, that the development of fracking is well. Well, fracking is very well developed on the U.S. side of the border. This is the same geological formation, and it's interesting that other states like uh, Nuevo León. And uh, a Chihuahua, this, uh, the Burgas Basin, it's called. So you can extract a lot of uh, gas and the shale gas in particular by using the techniques that were so that that were invented on the other side of the border. That would be very profitable for those businesses, right? But in a very interesting way, Los Zetas arrived there. Then, of course, there was the, the state response, and this 
confrontation, extreme violence, people left, people left lands that were rich in hydrocarbons, mainly oil and gas, or water, or in the case of Michoacán, iron ore, you know, places that were rich in hydrocarbons, in natural resources that were important for the, for the production of energy of many kinds, water, iron ore, uh, coal, gas, oil. And so I created and I presented some maps in Mexico and they coincide, um, you know, they, they coincide with the extreme violence that took place at some point in particular parts of Mexico. It's very impressive how, how these territories that their lands are gonna be lower their price, of course. And exactly at the when this all was happening, there was very important construction of infrastructure to produce energy as well. And the passage of energy reform took place in Mexico. In Mexico since 1938, uh, there was a company that was uh, Mexico nationalized uh, the oil industry and created a national industry to produce the oil and extract the oil, Petróleos Mexicanos, Pemex, Mexican Petroleum Company. And uh, in the years 2012, 13, and 14, uh, there were different changes in the constitution and finally energy reform was passed. The secondary legislation, uh, and I mean, that's why I'm, I'm talking about two, two years and a half where all these processes took place. And before 2006 and 2012, infrastructure to connect the halls of development of um, production was built. I mean, while people were killed massively in many places, uh, all this infrastructure was built, international and national infrastructure uh, was built. And this was perfect because in the years 2012 to 2014, there was a consolidation of energy reform. That was, and, and people who had their land, because this was kind of a national, a matter of national interest, and energy was a priority for, for the national interest. People had to, uh, had to rent their lands or sell their lands for, for destruction by the companies, the energy companies. Most of them were located outside Mexico, right? Most of them were transnational companies. So who benefited from all this violence, who benefited from Mexico's drug war, de uh, declared by the president, uh, and this agreed with the government of the United States through the Merida Initiative, because this was part of the Merida Initiative. The United States was praising and praised during Barack Obama's uh, government and, uh, and Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, leadership in the State Department, they were collaborating very closely with the Mexican authorities to allegedly go after the narcos. So what have you seen here? I'm not mentioning the word drug or the drug trade itself, right? So many people are confusing what happens with, I mean, uh, uh, linking this to drugs, in my perception, my personal stories and the, the, my, my personal experience, the, my family's experience, and also the experience that I saw doing research. Yeah, I was going to say the thousands of hours of research as well that you must have put into this. <laughs> and it was that it was a product of seven years because I lived yeah. there and I 
talk to people and travel. I, I traveled uh, the CETA route and, you know, inter interviewed uh, dozens of people to understand this. In this, I mean, not only uh, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't focus on on what on what. Uh, I mean, many people um, focus on, which is the drug trade. I, this is not a book about drugs. This was not a book about pol policies. This is a book about businesses. This is a, a book about who's benefiting from, from here. And also the military border industrial complex of the United States, the creation of walls and all this complex that protects the United States from these bad guys, from these bad hombres from Mexico, has also benefited these companies that produce arms, that provide private security, because after this, the new companies are going to arrive to Mexico. There are no conditions for us, so let me bring our own companies. So this benefits a complex. This benefits industries in, uh, in very different levels. This is not just one. But it's also about international banks, uh, arms producing firms, uh, companies of uh, the train mercenaries, and uh, governments that benefit from the industry of war. And in this case, the United States has not only accompanied Mexico, supported it with equipment, supporting it with, 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 with the strategy. And now they are, they are just washing their hands and saying, well, we have arrested this man who was very corrupt and supported the Chapo Guzman and the Sinaloa cartel without uh, trying to understand what has been behind it and their own responsibility in all of that because they were cooperating for the six years with the same man that supposedly uh, received bribes and protected an organization that supposedly is, is, is very bad for Americans, right? So yeah. why these 12 years you collaborated with a man that had been doing that without knowing that you were collaborating with a drug trafficker, I would say, right? Providing protection makes you part of the network. I think you, you, you make a good point. And I think this links a little bit as well to um, a dilution of responsibility as well for governments and, and companies um, wherein choices have so many consequences that you can't it's so difficult to to just kind of walk back through everything and say okay this company is responsible or this political person is responsible it's kind of shared and diluted as well which makes it really uh complex uh, as a web of, of responsibility i i want to i want to get onto the the specific topic of energy right and 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 what your research has shown yeah how what, what exactly did you see in your research in terms of how Losetas impacted uh, the environment, the, no, maybe not the environment already, but just the, the energy sector, at least in, in Mexico? Right, right. It's, it's very interesting to see how these criminal paramilitary groups appeared and started to generate this extreme violence and started to appear in places and in regions that were not necessarily um, logical for them to appear if you are talking about a drug trafficking organization. They started to control territories that go beyond that trade, right? Like, as I said, the Burgess Basin or the, state of, the states of Campeche and the state of Veracruz. These two states have a lot of oil or, or, or other places where you had gold or you had water. They started to control and then other groups arrived and then violence started to become massive. 
why these places that were not the regular places that were uh, routes to transport drugs or produce drugs, yeah. right? were to some extent connected to groups that at some point specialized in drug trafficking. But um, they started to appear with this very violent method methods started to extort people and i cannot make the claim because i have not found this connection between specific companies or 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 governments that they created these paramilitary groups and they created the violence and then because of that a new approach to security militarized then the state arrived because uh, because you would think that because of this control uh, Loseta started to extort rents to the society. So everybody had to pay um, extortion fees to these people for protection. Other groups arrived and what happened in Tamaulipas, the same group started, started with the model, but then they fought among themselves and they created even uh, a more horrible space of violence, right? So in these places, they started to appear, the state arrived, people started to leave, and this and this combined with the existence of hydrocarbons mainly and natural resources important for for the for the um, for the chain for the production chain of of energy and that is and i show it in the book that's like you know very visible the basins that were not explored or could be explored and at the same time when people were extremely frightened and it was everything that we talked about. For six years, this was the main thing for the president. It was the main conversation that we had. We had never lived that before in the, in the life of our country. That it was, it was the first thing that we thought about. And why during that period, all this infrastructure uh, was constructed just waiting for the consolidation or waiting for the passage of energy reform. And then a period of time, the next administration, when the priority of the president was supposedly uh, to consolidate the structural reforms and, and to be able to open the energy sector to these companies. Everything was set up, supposedly, or that was the plan. It has not happened this way because, because these organizations have fragmented but have not lost their power to cause damage and continue extorting rents from Mexican society. So would, would you say that um, upon this um, policy change to kind of open up the, uh, the exploitation of these natural resources to private companies, would you say that's kind of a symbol that this, um, this new uh, criminal model has kind of really permeated the Mexican government down to the um, policy level? I wouldn't say that I cannot allege that because I have not found the, the I mean, I have not found the evidence that link mm. uh, the companies with the policy and all that, but that's, that's something organic coming from the appearance of these criminal paramilitary groups that we don't, you know, that can be not planned because I cannot allege that <laughs> that there was intentionality. I just can I just I just can show um, a correlation, right? Yeah, yeah. Here in places reach natural resources and why the president declared a war on drugs, there there was the construction of all this infrastructure for production of energy once energy reform was passed. It's 
it's apparently an organic process that took place at a particular time after the right. market arrived to the country. So I cannot allege that this involves, um, you know, national or national uh, actors per se. Um, but what it's true is that this model has not stopped. And it's another thing that is very important to understand. Some of these groups, and this is where most of the people uh, connect energy with Losetas or with groups similar to Losetas, now the most important group that has exactly the same um, logic of operation, the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generacion, the New Generation Jalisco, Jalisco New Generation Cartel. It's just the, the same story. You start with 30 people that start to dominate, you know, almost half of the country uh, with the protection that was given to them and the capacity to bribe authorities and all that. That's exactly what's happening right now in the Pacific, um, which, is, which is interesting. They started um, to fight against Los Zetas. Apparently, they were kind of a paramilitary group that was connected with with drug trafficking organizations, drug trafficking organizations, and uh, the Mexican uh, government forces wanted to fight against Los Zetas and collaborated with a particular enforcer of Sinaloa Cartel. That's now called, at, this, at that time they were Los Zetas and now they're called Jalisco New Generation Cartel. Uh, what happens is that they started to specialize in stealing fuel from the Mexican uh, oil company that they were refining fuel to, it was a it's a massive company, but it's very interesting that in, I mean, this is also what I show in the book, exactly at the same time that, uh, that this neoliberal model was taking place, democracy was, was spread, was, was uh, started to be consolidated in Mexico, and Los Etas arrived. At this, at this same time, uh, the energy sector was, Kind of like experiencing a transformation and the national company was um, also under attack of these corporations these criminal corporations the criminal corporations started to steal a lot of fuel but it was massive so at the same time the model was extracting a lot a lot a lot um, of power from the national oil company it was very interesting how the directors of these uh, uh, of this uh, government government uh, business, uh, Pemex allowed this to happen, right? And now they are partners of, or they are in the boards of of these um, transnational energy companies. Our consulting firms operate in the energy business, right? They want to help to open the market. It's very interesting to see that the first man who directed Pemex. Um, uh, Jesus Reyes Heroles, he was the director of Pemex, and he, this was the first time when Los Zetas started to steal massive amounts of, of fuel from the old company. He, well, he didn't know anything, and now he's a consultant that had a very important role in the opening of the sector, not only in the reform, because he didn't operate the reform per se, but he's consulting the firms that started to participate in the rounds to have access to the, um, uh, I mean, to the, 
I mean, to the operations that were going to be done by the by private companies, right? So he's the intermediary between the state in the, with this consulting firm. Now he's in private in the private industry, but before he allowed the dismantling of Pemex because Pemex has been dismantling gradually because also of the involvement of criminal groups, the involvement of Losetas. Losetas started this model of extracting rents not only from the people but also mainly from this. This, uh, I mean, this this foreign energy company. So it's very interesting to see all these things happening at the same time. This is what the book is, is talking about. So Losetas actually were a, are a group that have been providing services. I compare these groups uh, to group or to companies like Exxon or like uh, Halliburton, which is uh, an old service firm. It, they operate in a similar form, right? How they connect or how they compare to companies like Exxon, because they are massive corporations that don't dedicate themselves to just like produce certain things or provide certain services. They kind of like have a number of other companies and, and Losetas at some point, well, I mean, the, the model was very diversified and very interesting. Didn't operate like a hierarchical unit it operated like a corporation. You didn't have one leadership. You acted like an army and in the, in the administrative world, you had like, like, like a corporation. You had different, um, different areas or different businesses that operate under one umbrella. And you provide, um, provide services to, to these energy firms like Halliburton. And this is exactly what Losetas did, provided services to these firms because not only they exported um, hydrocarbons, uh, gas compensate, and there's proof of that in judicial cases that the Mexican company uh, filed against uh, big corporations like Sonoco, Phillips, sorry, Conoco Phillips and, uh, and Shell and other firms in Texas and in the United States overall. They, they provided services actually and at the same time uh, they drained um, the Mexican national oil company and the new companies would enter easier uh, once the Mexican oil company, national oil company was so weakened, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting way to, mm. how to, to see these groups as part of this very interesting uh, process, I would say. What, what would you say they, they bring to, to the table though? Because... I'm trying to think of Alexander Dunlap, for example, in another episode told us about all about the the violence inherent to energy companies um, when they sort of do when they when they go for extractive activities. But I'm I'm trying to think I'm trying to imagine what kind of violence or or things other than violence Losetas would bring to um, Mexican energy markets and and corporate like corporate kind of processes and stuff um do did they bring their violence their kind of more explicit violence to to the market well um it's interesting because first of all i mean who appears there first paramilitary groups criminal groups right bad guys so supposedly energy firms have to hire their own people and then mm. you start paramilitary groups appearing right to protect the companies that were that are fighting against the criminal groups, right? Mm -hmm. And so bring themselves this violence, and with that, the lack of uh, of control by the state, right? So they can do 
many things. And also the local farmers, the local people, the owners of that land don't want to know anything about that land. The land goes down and the companies are still there. They have their own paramilitary groups that protect them. The regular people are the ones that are attacked. They don't. They can survive. They are protected. There are criminal groups. It's the same thing what happened in Colombia. It's very, very similar in that regard, right? You have uh, military groups. You had guerrilla groups. You never know. The only people that are losing their lands, like my father did, or like, uh, I mean, he didn't lose their land in the long term. He, lose their he, he lost their business, his business. And they, many times they lose their land because the land goes down, the price goes down because these are very violent places and people sell. But what it's there has a lot of, um, a, a, a lot of uh, resources. How, I mean, how, how they generate violence? Well, they, they bring paramilitaries themselves and they, they expel people from their lands in ways that are now noticeable, right? In, with the aim of protecting themselves from these groups that, I, that appear from I don't know where, I know why and how. Uh, there's a story for everything, but for me it was very interesting how at some point all these Zetas started to inundate the country. They were like, I mean, flew the country. Uh, to, to started to, um, I mean, to acquire lots of territory, control several territories. There were 30 people. The same thing now with the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. Like, you know, a couple of dozen people started to participate with the Marines, the state uh, government of, of Veracruz, and they were against Los Zetas. And now they control territories in half of the nation, right? How? How this happens? And then, you know, these companies also generate this violence hiring paramilitary groups to, to be able uh, to have the land or to extract the resources from the land. People are so frightened. People have to pay extortion fees to these paramilitary groups or the criminal groups. So they'll leave their lands. War, as an author called Don Paley said, it's not a war against drugs. It's a, she calls it the book, Drug War Capitalism. It's a war against the people because it's the people who lose their land. This is how I, I had like a vision there because not the vision, but I kind of like related it to what happened to my family, right? You know, who really, who really loses from these? Who lost from this war in Mexico? First of all, the people leaving those lands or that are, that are extorted or that are killed. Um, the old Mexican, the Mexican oil company. This is, these are the two actors that lost the most here mm -hmm. and who won the most transnational energy companies and the military border industrial complex. They're also connected with these new uh, massive funds with all these people, all the same business, right? I guess we can go on and talk about a little bit the, about how you see this being solved in some ways, right? Um, how, is there, is there something throughout your research that you thought um, could be a fix in some ways, at least, to the crisis. Um, for example, I'm thinking about the current uh, new president of uh, of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obradoso. Amlo is, you know, he's been president for what two years now, something like that, almost. Um, he he's very obviously seemed to promise a lot. Um, so on the political aspect, we've got a lot of promises of. Uh, 
of of a better Mexico, a, a safer Mexico, but also one that maybe isn't tied down to to these criminal organizations. Um, do you see any kind of any kind of fix for the situation from the political class or even from the people, maybe from community organizations or or uh, from international organizations? I, 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 this is, I don't want to be cynical here, but unfortunately, um, at this point, particularly because of our geostrategic, I mean, our location, Mexico's geostrategic location and dependence on the United States, it's going to be very difficult. Um, you know, Mexico is not a sovereign country in any form. It has a border with the, so far, I, I'm not sure anymore, but the biggest economy in the world, you know, depending on how you measure it. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, you know, it has, it's, it's in a jail, it's in a geopolitical jail in many ways, right? And who are the real masters of Mexico? transnational capital and national capital, big capital. And the president of Mexico in the first two years of government has been captured and has been, you know, we can, we can see how he promised several things for the people. He, he, he promised the energy independence. And with what has happening during COVID times, the decline in the prices of oil, the United States have to come to save Mexico. And there are certain things that need to be paid uh, by Mexico here. Um, unfortunately, at this moment, I don't see a viable solution because I don't see that Andres Manuel López Obrador has been able to accomplish his energy agenda. And these companies are pushing very hard to make the, his life miserable, particularly in the energy sector. As you know, the new uh, NAFTA, the US, Mexico, Canada, yeah has uh, included, and this was since the beginning, the transition period that was written down and the three governments um, uh, agreed on this, you know, Mexico should uh, respect the agreement, should respect the contracts that were given to transnational companies uh, in the previous sexenium, the previous administration, right? Many of these contracts were made in a very corrupt way, and we know about that because the head of um, Petrolos Mexicanos, the other head, Emilio Lozoya, was arrested in Spain and is going to be extradited to Mexico. Yes, right. I mean, how we can solve it? Well, we can solve it without corruption, fighting corruption with education. You know, the, the general things that we always say, which is true, yeah. but in this yeah. geopolitical cage that we are at, mm -hmm. with all these companies loving in Washington and Washington being able to impose the policies on Mexico. How are we going to get through this? How are we going to, to pressure uh, the United States? What our government has not done is to negotiate in, in, a more, in a savvier way, right? Supposedly now Manuel has an agenda that, you know, no confrontation, but let's see. I mean, I don't see at this point uh, noticeable advancements. What about something like um, what this reminds me of a little bit is um, uh, Rafael Correa from from Ecuador, who was uh, present in the mm -hmm. sort of mid is it mid mid two thousands I think to to mid two thousand tens. Yeah, he took on very sort of clearly took on uh, international um, 
corporations and, and governments. Um, but I, I guess that, that was, <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess that, was, that was a very specific context. But do you think that there's any lessons that could be learned from such a, from such a defense? Um, I, yeah, no, I don't think so. In that regard, I don't think that we can compare any country in the Americas to Mexico just because of the fact that Mexico has the border with the United States. Okay. Mexico is an exceptional case in that regard. We're in a, geo, um, a geopolitical cage in this way. We are not independent. We'll never be independent unless uh, the big power falls apart. Falls apart. And I don't want to be cynical, I don't want to be negative, but that's the way things are, things are right now. Mexico can win from savvier leaderships and not so, um, you know, prone to be, to do whatever United States uh, wants, like the first governments of this, of this century, right? They were not even negotiating a very small uh, part of these things because they, I mean, because Mexico could win. It has such an important uh, border with with uh, with the United States. Oh, well, that's such an important border, and Mexico could win more. But, but at the same time, there's a lot of pressure that can be put on Mexico. And this is a lesson that Andres Manuel López Obrador has been learning. I'm not I'm not saying that he has done everything wrong, but I am saying that he has it more difficult than he thought in the beginning. So his promises yeah. are not. Very accomplish the way he wants to because he's always going to be pressured and we have seen it happening these two years so we have to be savvier but it's going to be very difficult we cannot learn the lessons from all these other countries because we're not in the same mm -hmm. position they're not in the same position as we are as we are yeah and in a way i hope i hope um i think i'll try and make a point of this that in the some future episode that we can soon talk about um some of the very sort of positive aspects of, of Mexico's uh, changes, because I I always hate um, this sort of reduction. It feels like reductionism in a way to to of Mexico to drug cartels and criminal organizations, and when really it's it's a country full of of, of other things than that. Um, so I, I hope we can we can very soon have someone on the podcast maybe who specializes in in a lot of the good stuff as well um, that Mexico does. But um, but I guess you know we we've got to kind of focus in on on some critiques too. Um, is there uh, one of my one of my closing questions would be: Is there something that Europe, for example, can do, or that that people activists in Europe, um, such as Jamie and I, or you know people who aren't necessarily in Mexico but would like to either learn more about Mexico it either aren't in, in Mexico and would like to learn more about it or in, in a more effective way to understand really like what the situation is and, and how we could help to fix it from afar, you know, because it, it seems like, for example, I'll, I'll take the example, the example of the US or Canada as a European uh, climate activist. If I want to help the US or Canada, they're the path to helping them is quite similar, I think, in the sense that they both have the same problems of um, political class that's that's very embedded with international international um, companies, and there are very clear ways to kind of get out of that. But it seems like with Mexico, it's a little bit more 
um, muddied in a sense because there is that violence that you talked about. What what would you be your 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 recommendation for international activists and organizations to as to how we can best help uh, Mexico and Mexicans? Right, it's it's very easy, and there's a lot to do in that in that regard. And you kind of started with that, you know, we did classes, and and uh, you know this, and and this is something that Europeans, as you mentioned, right, and many other people, and that's not that's not uh, pointing anybody uh, here. Um, you know, this connection of I mean, connection of Mexico to drug cartels, to I mean, we have this image of Mexico in a certain way. And I think that you then, young activists or young scholars should read a little bit more or try to be more interested in what is what are really the problems of the countries, not just focus on what the mass media or Netflix is, is, is trying to tell us that exists. We know this is not true. We know that there are political gains from creating uh, a sense of reality that does not exist, but that, you know, criminalizes some and, uh, and creates heroes, creates elements and heroes here and there in order to profit from that. So yeah. interviewing, trying to open your eyes to all this, what is, what, what is Mexico about? You know, Mexico, from the Mexican voices, there is a, there is a big uh, attempt to, I mean, this has to do, this happens to me too. It happens to do with uh, language limitations, right? You can learn better from people who speak the language, but sometimes we don't know the language. You all in Europe speak a lot of languages, we don't. But at the same time, trying to, to know from Mexico what Mexico is about, and not from Netflix, and not reproduce, and not to reproduce that rhetoric uh, that it's produced by the powerful people in this world the owners of mass media, the owners of platforms that net, like Netflix, reading, talking to people. You have a lot of information, inviting people from the countries, trying to figure out what Mexico is about, what the developing world is about, what are the problems beyond uh, this glamorization, this glamour that, that, that we see in the TV all the time about Colombia, cocaine, women, and, and people with, yeah. with, with hats. You know, there's something that I cannot really take. Uh, people from other countries, mostly developed countries, think of Mexicans as people with hats. I mean, with cowboy hats. Cowboy hats are American, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, or like, you know, other hats that, that you know, this is stereotypes. Combating yeah. stereotype knowledge with information is the best way to, inf- I mean, information is the best way to produce good policies because people are not going to support stupid policies going after narcos because they believe that this is what they have to fight uh, against, right? Mm-hmm. So information and knowledge is the best way to fight stereotypes. Yeah. Fighting is the best way to support adequate policies, right? Or resist yeah. uh, uh, militarization and wrong drug policies. Yeah, I think there's a lot. There's a lot of, uh, as you rightfully point out, I think there's a lot of uh, exo- exoticism going on uh, from Europe, at least, where, like you said, we we just see it as this exotic land uh, that's then we reduce to very specific <laughs> um, characteristics that are 
are definitely not telling the the whole story. So to to close off um, this episode, maybe I just want to ask you a final question. Um, if Jamie, Jamie, do you have any final questions, or can I? Uh, you can ask those. You can. Ask. Yeah. Okay. To close off the podcast and, and ask you a final question, then uh, apart from your more in addition to your books, uh, Los Detas Inc. and Democracy in Two uh, Mexicos. Um, what what books or or medias or um, you know people maybe researchers would you recommend to to our listeners and and to us as well to Jamie and I if we want to learn more about Mexico from Mexican voices like you say? Oh. Yeah, are you talking about scholars or or uh, yeah. Anything from sort of books um, that you know could tell us more about the pro- the real sort of issues beyond the mediatization of it. The real issues are even scholars or or sort of you know personalities that you see as speaking really truth to power. Okay, I would I would start by by pointing out uh, like the work of Tony Payan. Tony Payan is the director of the Mexico Center at the Baker Institute at Rice University. He's Mexican. He's a very hardworking person, a self-made man, um, who has written about security, migration, trade, you name it. He understands the border very well, but at a different level. It's very interesting to see that he created, I mean, people in a conservative think tank, let's say, but a person who comes up from from the state of Chihuahua, from a, from a family, from a Mexican family, not a privileged background, but he has gotten there from here to there. And he has the vision, he has interviewed very powerful people and, you know, all types of people. And, you know, his own background um, allows him to understand uh, I mean, you know, a great sphere of things. So the work of Tony Payan, very outstanding. I would also suggest that you reach to Sergio Chapa. Sergio Chapa and I are in the process of writing a book on the border and to, to eliminate stereotypes of the border. And he's an amazing photojournalist and he covers energy. And so for the Houston Chronicle, the stories are very important. He, he has a vision um, of a person from the border. He used to cover uh, the border and every single topic from security to environmental issues to whatever, because we have very, we had very little resources in the Rio Grande Valley where we live at the border. And so he has transitioned into energy. His work is very outstanding. He covers uh, the the non-renewable energy sector and the and the renewables and the green and I mean everything he, he knows a lot about about energy and the border his his work is is outstanding I would suggest his work I would suggest the work of Kathleen Stout Her, she is an emeritus professor at the University of Texas at El Paso she's a feminist and she's very concerned now with labor issues so she's kind of like a like a retired academic that turned into activism so okay. I mean this would represent for yeah. me, you know, an interesting group of people. One in journalism, one in activism, and one in the think tank outside of. Yeah, that's that's great. Thank you so much. I'll I'll add those to the uh, description of the podcast. So for anyone listening that would like to find these three um, 
uh, activist journalist and, and, and thinker uh, researcher, then please head to the description of, of this video slash podcast uh, when it's on YouTube or Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that. And we will add those in. So um, thank you so much, Guadalupe, for telling us about your ideas. It, it is really interesting to see how dangerous this new model is and it, this, this, this um, political model that should really be um, recognized and acknowledged by countries and international institu institutions, just people in general, to help resist it and just how the public always victimized in, you know in the old system and this and this new model do you have any final things to say before we close up the episode what i was talking about in the end will have massive negative implications uh, for the environment in the country why because if you leave these companies um you know this market this enormous market to them without regulations without um, I mean, what has been done and the way that they have benefited or they will benefit will be will be disastrous for our environment because it's a lot about energy, it's about, about hydrocarbons and also uh, the control of certain parts of the country for the production of green energy, which is not very green in my view sometimes. And I think that, that Sander probably explained you why and with his book, renewing destruction. I'm, I'm a fan of his book. I'm a fan of his work because he's one of the too. persons with the, with the, I mean, with the rhetoric that everybody is, is in, right? You know, I, I co-authored um, a couple of short pieces with him because of his view, right? You're not this green activist or this environmental activist that believes everything that the corporations also tell you about, but try to understand the implications of these uh, corporate models in also in the green energy sector, right? Or the, the non-renewable energy sector. Um, and so, I mean, you know, we have to be conscious of, of, of the, what this model uh, has to do with the environment of the developing nations. And, mm -hmm. and we have conscious about these inequalities, right? We have to be very conscious about how the developed world has been destroying the developing nations in ways that uh, we have not talked enough about. Focusing on, on particular things, yes, our, our, our environment is at risk, but we need to understand much better the details of, of this destruction and how it plays out. So I, you know, back to the work by Sander, uh, by, by, by Alexander, it would, it, it makes me feel that we need to understand these things from a more comprehensive perspective. It's, it's mm -hmm. about, the, it's about resources, it's about politics, and we need to complement our studies. It's not just the video yeah. Many of these things are, 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 I mean, go together, right? Yeah. It's all very intersectional in the end, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm find, increasingly finding that is the case. That's how Skander drew me in. <laughs> to, to, to. <laughs> yeah, intersectionality. The environment is everywhere and, and we're in the environment, you know. Yeah, but we have not to lose uh, the track that we're really talking about classes and money and sometimes just focusing a lot of this intersectionality and uh, identity politics and you know which is which you know I, I, I think that all these 
uh, goals, all these fights are important to fight, but without losing perspective of what it has what and how capitalists also capitalize from identity politics to maintain their power and make us believe that we're winning when we're really not. I mean, and you can also do a program that, I mean, to, to some extent be a little bit more critical of all these movements that are apparently are really good, you know, yeah, yeah. for uh, LGBT rights and, uh, and uh, zero racism and all things like that. So you can pay attention to here, you believe that you're gaining something, but at the same time, these people are, are, are establishing better and consolidating their power well. Well, you believe that you're fighting uh, against racism, that the structures are not fought that way. We need to create more balanced and equal societies. And this is not the way just to, to, to build them without this, this focus on class. And that also has to be a focus. And your focus on race only sometimes make us lose the attention towards class. Yeah, I think this is the, I guess, the, the phrase of the day kind of for the episodes uh, is to have a, a more focused and, and more um, open-minded, I think, way of, of looking at things and, and really going to the source of the issues past all the, past all the, the, the mud, the muddied kind of um, stats and, and, and news and, and all that stuff. Um, yeah, Guadalupe, thank you so much for, for coming you, on the, on the show. It's been really interesting. Absolutely. Thank and, you uh, very much for the work you do too. Thank yeah, you. Thanks. We hope to, we hope to, no worries. And we hope to hear from you again at some point. And yeah. Um, yeah. All right. It's, a, it's been a pleasure talking with you too. <laughs>